look at God and at faith as if we were at the very beginning of our faith, at at the starting point. What we're doing is we're taking a look at who God is um, from a, a perspective of almost starting over in faith. And if you're someone who is uh, brand new to Christianity, searching brand new to Bethlehem, let me just say once again, this is like the absolute perfect series for you to sort of be connecting with our church um, at, uh, because it's going to answer and lead you through a lot of the questions that you might have about faith and about God. But for those of you also who aren't new to the faith, let, let me remind you about some of the blessings that are going to come out of these eight weeks. One of our goals is that you grow in a depth of your faith as you wrestle with certain questions that more than likely you've had and maybe haven't always been able to know exactly how to answer them. Secondly, that you grow in a confidence in your faith and a confidence in God's promises for you. And thirdly, a goal is that you're equipped because you probably have people at work, um, in your neighborhood, wherever it might be, that are at the starting point of their faith, and now you're going to be able to better have a conversation with them, be able to better answer questions that they might have. All right? So let's get into uh, week three then. So back in the early 2000s, there was a TV show that maybe some of you remember, if not probably watched. It's a show called Punked. Any of you ever watch uh, Punked? All right, so living in suburbia, Punked, in case you know, I need to translate, is basically uh, suburban for we tricked you, okay? That's, that's what Punked means, all right? And so the show was essentially the, the creators making up these big elaborate lies and playing a trick on somebody and then videotaping their reaction. That was, that was the show, like very cruel, but kind of funny if the trick wasn't on you, okay? And so as an example, uh, one of the episodes, they were uh, uh, tricking, punking uh, Justin Timberlake. And so they went to his house and some actors uh, posed as government officials and they said that Justin was $900,000 behind on his taxes. And so they were there to repossess everything he owned, which doesn't even really make sense, but Timberlake believed it. So they got all these big boxes. They're throwing his stuff in boxes. They hook up his truck to a tow truck. They tell him that his dogs, which were at a different one of his homes, have already been repossessed and taken to the pound. And they, they smash one of his guitars as they're kind of putting it in a box and things. And as you can imagine, Timberlake is just freaking out. In fact, he ends up calling his mom, which tells you he was quite young because he called his mom, or every guy just calls his mom when he's in trouble. I don't know what it tells us. But anyway, Timberlake calls his mom. He starts crying a little bit, actually. I mean, he's just totally upset by this lie. And as they've kind of got him to his wits end, all this point, right? Um, question for you, have you ever been punked or have you ever believed something that wasn't true? Uh, probably has happened, especially maybe when you were younger. I have a quick story. Uh, When I was a kid, there was a neighbor down the street that had put in a pool, and the the dad got all of us kids together before we were going to use his pool for the very first time and, you know, and so on in the future. 
and he gave us all the rules, and then he told us that he had put a chemical in the pool. Some of you know where I'm going with this. That if you pee in the pool, there's going to be this big red sort of ring around you in the water because it detects it and things. And, you know, all of us kids believed it, come to find out years later that there is no such chemical. So if I come to your house and you tell me that, I'm going to know right away that you're lying to me. But in the long run, I guess in this case, believing that lie was beneficial to the owner of the pool because probably a lot less of that happened in his pool. But yet it was still a lie. It was believing a lie, all right? And so here's a truth that uh, I think is universal, all right? It's our first fill in the blank. That wrong information, if you believe the wrong things, you're going to come to wrong conclusions, false conclusions, In the same way, the corollary of that is that right information is going to lead you to the correct conclusions or to right conclusions. So what does this tell you about the information that you navigate your life with? That God willing, hopefully, it's going to be right, okay? That we want to navigate our life, especially, I would say, our faith life with the right information, So here's a question, as we consider the starting point of faith, the starting point of relationship with God. Where do you get your information from about faith and about God? For a lot of you, this is probably a pretty easy answer. It's from the Bible, from the Bible. Have you ever thought about, um, as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, have you ever stopped to think about how much of your hope And how much of your, I guess, peace comes from things written in the Bible? And and here's a little clue for you. All of it. Everything is based on what is found in the Bible. Your view of life as a Christian comes from what is written in the Bible. Your view of death as a Christian comes from words written in the Bible. Your view of God, your view of marriage, your view of eternity, your view of heaven, your view of parent-child relationships, everything comes from what is written in the Bible. So then, what would you say that we are hoping and praying is true about the Bible? (laughs) That it's right information, That it's true. None of us want to show up on the last day finding out that we've been punked, right, so to speak. Now, what we're going to do in the message today is I just want to reinforce for you as Christians and as those who might be thinking about Jesus and Christianity that we have every reason to be absolutely confident that the Bible is filled with right information, And I want to do that by not only looking at what the Bible says about itself, but also considering some things that are true when you look at the Bible from an outward perspective. Before we get into a Bible Bible text first, though, I just want to give you a little bit of background about the Bible because I wonder if some of you uh, may not even realize some very, I guess, important things about what is contained in it. Um, You maybe have heard me say this before, but the Bible's not a book. I'm not trying to be tricky there. It's just true. 
The Bible's not a book the way that you think of a book. Because the way that we think of a book is one author. Let's take J.K. Rowling for a moment, the author of the Harry Potter series. One author, over the course of several months, several years, writes every single word in there from front to back in a relatively short amount of time. That is not the Bible. The Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books. It's a library of books. It's, it's a bunch of letters and books that have been put together into one binding so that we can go to one place and have all of what we would call God's Word or Scripture or the Bible. But yet, it was written over not just several years. The span of it, 1,600 years. The first section written in 1,500 B.C., the last book, Revelation, written in 180 40 different, more than 40 different authors wrote parts of the Bible. 66 different letters or books of the Bible. And yet here's the most amazing part as we think about the length, the, the, the varied authors of the Bible, the length of time, is that the entire Bible tells the same story. From the very beginning to the very end, you can see this this storyline that continues to be told throughout the centuries. And it's the story, it's the true account, it's the plan, the promise of the world's salvation. Of how in Genesis we learn that our first parents messed up the relationship with God through their sin and how we honestly are no different than them as we daily mess up that relationship through our own sin. How God promised a Savior, how he guided and protected this little clan of people, descendants from Abraham, for about 2,000 years until at the very right time 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was born in, Gal- in, born in Bethlehem. <laughs> and then how Jesus died and rose again, just as was promised, so that someday he's going to be returning to take home with him all those who believe in him, all those sinners who put their faith and trust in him, have their sins forgiven, have a home in heaven, one for them. That all 66 books are that story, that account No contradictions, no varying from that truth is absolutely an amazing thing. And what I want to now share with you as we get into a section written by Peter is how that happened. How did it happen that over 40 authors over 1,600 years all tell the same story and don't contradict themselves? (laughs) Well, Peter one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and also one of the writers of the New Testament, he gives us some really awesome insight into how the Bible came about and why we call God's Word, the Bible, God's Word. A little bit of background as to the verses we're going to look at. So Peter is writing in about 60 AD, so about 30 or so years after Jesus rose from the dead, 30 years after Easter or so. 
He's writing to a group of Christians who are pretty new in their faith, as all Christians were at that time, because it was, a, it was a, a new thing. Jesus had just risen from the dead. And they're beginning, these Christians, to doubt the centerpiece of the Christian faith, as we looked at last week. Not only Easter, the resurrection, but also they begin to doubt that Jesus, was he really God? And, and, and part of their problem was that the communities around them and the people who didn't believe were, were really just throwing arrows at them and, and getting, and, I mean, they just were not supportive of what they were believing as Christians. And so they began to fall into some of the thinking of the secular world around them. They began to doubt. And so Peter in this section has two things he wants to tell them. The first thing is this. You can be confident that Jesus is the Savior because I saw him rise from the dead and I saw him glow. (laughs) Now that's weird. But Peter saw Jesus glow. He saw part of Jesus' glory as God. And Peter wants these people to, to know that that they can trust his eyewitness account. But then Peter says something that, to me, just is absolutely awesome to think about. He says that as great as my verbal witness of what I saw is, and maybe other people you could talk to who saw Jesus too, because remember, this is only about 30 years after the resurrection, better than their verbal witness is something else. There is something you can have more confidence in than even a verbal witness of who God is and what he's about. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's what Peter says. Here's what you have. You have the word of the prophets, i.e., you have the Bible. You have the Old Testament scriptures, which are more certain in the Greek, when you translate it. What Peter is saying is that the word of God is more certain than the certain witness of those who have seen. The word of God is more certain than the certain witness of those who have seen. And he says, because of that, you would do well to pay attention to the Bible. That makes sense. Because it is, the Bible, a light shining in the dark place. Have you thought about that? It's true. The Word of God that we have, the Bible, is is a light that shines in the darkness and the confusion of this sinful world. Until the day dawns, the day being the last day, and the morning star, Jesus, rises in your hearts. Verse 20. And so above all, as you consider the Bible, you must understand how it came about. You see, no prophecy, no part of Scripture came about by the writer or the prophet's own interpretation. It wasn't just someone wanting to write some spiritual anecdotes or some platitudes, but instead, verse 21, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the word for carried there is that they were pushed along like a wind pushing a sailboat across a lake. That the Holy Spirit, that God was involved in all of this writing. And so when we say that the Bible is God's word, what we're saying as a Christian is that God was involved. 
that God was involved. Like, like how? Like he put the writers in a trance and then he, he sort of made them into zombies and he made them move their hands beyond their will so that what they wrote was God's word? No. Or maybe he played this big, you know, game of telephone with the writer. And God's like, all right, here's what you write. For God so loved the world, in Greek, of course. And John's like, hey, wait, you're going too fast, Lord. Please slow down. Okay, I didn't get that. Lat- no, that's not. It wasn't a word-for-word dictation and God's megaphone from heaven. So what does it mean that the Bible is God's word? How did it come about? Do you know? We should. Let me help you understand by breaking down Peter's words a little bit. Peter says that when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to prophecy, men spoke. And so a real important part of the writing of the Bible is that humans were involved. And not just in a zombie trance type of way. Let me show you in certain, a couple examples of how they were involved. Here's an example from John. He writes about how, uh, how he wrote some of what he proclaimed. He says, that which was from the beginning, the message of Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands had touched, this is what we proclaim concerning Jesus. This is what we write concerning Jesus. So what it means that The Bible's God's word starts with humans being involved. And for some of the sections of Scripture, of much of it, people were writing about the things that they experienced. John spent a lot of time with Jesus, and he wrote about it. And he wrote it down, the things he saw, the things he heard, the things he touched. Here's another example from a writer who wrote about Jesus' life. His name was Luke. Did you know Luke wasn't a disciple? Some of you maybe didn't know that, in the sense of the 12 disciples, I should say. Um, He didn't spend probably any time with Jesus while he was alive on this earth. So how did he write all about Jesus' life? Well, Luke tells us, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything about Jesus from the beginning, it seems good also for me or to me to write an orderly account. Um, So Luke... How he was involved is he did some investigating like a news reporter might do. And he talked to people who, who saw, and he interviewed people, and he, he corroborated witnesses, and he did all that kind of research, and then he wrote it down. Um, another way that the human side of the Bible shows up is in the style of writing. And this is hard to, to tell when you're reading a translation like it is in English. But when you get into the Greek and the Hebrew, like I've had an opportunity to do in my studies, um, you, it really comes out the differences in style. So for instance, uh, some Hebrew linguists would say that Isaiah, because of his vast vocabulary, he's one of the writers of the Old Testament, that Isaiah was kind of like the, the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. I, I've, I've heard and seen some people say that because of the amazing words and variety of words that he used, where in contrast in the Old Testament, you have another prophet whose name was Amos. He, there's a, a book uh, entitled titled by his name. He was a, a farmer. Nothing wrong with being a farmer, but for him, he wasn't necessarily as highly educated as what Luke was. I'm sorry, as what Isaiah was. 
And so his vocabulary is much less than Isaiah. And you can really see this when you're translating. Or take the New Testament as an example. You have John. John wrote an account of Jesus' life. He was a fisherman. Again, um, not highly educated. Great guy, didn't go to college type of thing, okay? And when you're translating Greek as an aspiring pastor in school, the first book that they put before you from the Bible is John. The reason is, is the grammar construction, I guess I've heard it compared to a Dick and Jane book. It's very simple, subject, verb, object type of thing. Jesus got in the boat. Jesus went across the water type of easy construction. Whereas, in contrast, we have Luke. Luke was a doctor by profession and so highly educated, and you can tell that in the way that he wrote. And so Luke was actually one of the last books of the New Testament that we had a chance to dig into at seminary because of the very difficult construction. Now, does this help you understand a little bit of what it means and what it doesn't mean that the Bible is God's word? It doesn't mean that God dictated every single word. What it does mean, first of all, is that he used people's experiences, people's skills, people's gifts, and they wrote. But that wasn't it. Let's go back to our verse from Peter. Men spoke, but they spoke from God as they were carried along, as, as that wind blew, that, that sailboat across the lake, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying, John did not misremember an experience he had with Jesus and wrote it wrong because while it was based on what he saw and heard, God was involved and helped him to remember everything correctly. What it means is that when Luke was doing his um, interviewing, he didn't get wrong information and write wrong stuff because God was carrying them along by the Holy Spirit so that he had right information. It means that when we have these letters written by guys like Peter and Paul and, and, and so on and so forth in the New Testament, James, that are, are grappling with deep points of doctrine, it means that as they were grappling with Jesus' teachings, they didn't get stuff wrong because what Peter says is that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see what the Bible says, okay, about itself. This is what the Bible says. Men and women wrote, God guided it. Another passage that says the same thing. All Scripture is God-breathed. God's involved. Our next fill-in-the-blank, based on that. God was actively involved in the writing of the Bible. Now, <laughs> for those of us who like proof of these things, it gets us to think a little bit, doesn't it? This is a good thinking. This is a good thing to think about. And, and what I'll say is that I can prove to you gravity by taking a ball and dropping it. And you can see that gravity is reality. I cannot, in the same way, prove like that verbal inspiration or that the, the Bible, every word of it, was guided by God. 
But at the same time, I want you to know that this truth that Christians believe is not without support. In fact, I I love some words that are written um, by one of the professors that once taught at the seminary that I went to. His name was uh, Siegbert Becker. And he wrote this about verbal inspiration. He wrote that verbal inspiration is something that we, have to, that we believe by faith. Um, I can't prove it the way that I can prove um, gravity or something like that. But, but you also need to understand that God did not leave the infallibility or the fact that the Bible is all true and has no error and is verbally inspired, that God did not leave the infallibility of the Bible without support. What Siegbert Becker is saying is that we can't prove it, but there is so much support that what the Bible says about itself is absolutely true. And so now you're wondering, what is that support? Well, we could have an entire sermon series or Bible class on this, and it would last for a couple years, okay? But what I wanted to do in the little time that I have left is just give you a couple things to think about that Siegbert Becker was thinking about, too. Our next fill in the blank. That verbal inspiration has support because of the amazing biblical agreement that is found in it. Some of that I alluded to before. 40 plus authors, 1,600 years, none of them contradict each other. You get two people in a room and have them write about spiritual things, and they're going to disagree more than agree. Probably. That's not the way it is with these 66 books we know as the Bible. Amazing. Another thing when it comes to biblical agreement is this. Um, I want you to think about the amazing agreement there is between prophets or writers of the Bible in the Old Testament and the reality of history in the New Testament. Let me give you a quick example. So Isaiah, again, that Shakespeare of the Old Testament, he was a a guy who wrote over 100 prophecies about what the coming Savior would be like and what he would do. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. And in fact, kind of an aside, but a cool thing, we have copies of Isaiah that date back to 300 years before Christ was born. I mean, these are really, really old documents. They're part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyway, in those documents and in Isaiah's original, there's over 100 predictions about what the coming Savior would would do and what would happen to him. Fast forward 700 years from Isaiah, and both biblical and non-biblical history, when applicable, shows that Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Isaiah predicted things like the Savior would be doing ministry in the area of Galilee. He mentioned things like how he would be an heir of King David or a descendant of King David, how he would be accused of certain things, but yet he wouldn't say a word. Isaiah said this 700 years before, that that ultimately the Savior would die with other criminals or with criminals. All these things happened. How does that happen? Peter knows men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God was involved. One other thing to touch on. It also has support because of historical agreement. 
Now, I want you to think about something that makes the Bible even more amazing than you've maybe thought about before. Anybody can go into a room, say they had a vision from God, and write a bunch of platitudes or theories on how to be right with God or what God is like. Like, you could do that, make that claim, and there's really nothing that someone could do to disprove that more than likely, okay? Truly disprove it, right? (laughs) But the Bible is not that way. The interesting thing about the Bible is that all of it is connected to history, which means that in theory, it would be much easier to disprove that all of it's true. Because history, you can prove or disprove. And yet here's the amazing thing. The Bible's connected to history, which is just so awesomely encouraging anyways. But along with that, there has been no 